everyone. Welcome to another amazing pod. Late night with chefs, Truffle Boy and Doug reporting for duty. But Doug had a little uh, surprise. Uh, his parents flew in. He's opening a restaurant. So he's going to make it in spirit and he's going to be tuning in from Florida. Um, we are super excited to introduce our next guest chef. He's coming from Toronto, Canada. Chef Ron McKinley, and he's also the chef de cuisine at Canoe Restaurant. Correct, chef? Yeah. How are you doing today? You got it right. You got it right. Yeah, I'm good, mate. Yeah, Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, we're super excited to learn a little bit more about you, kind of where you started your culinary journey. So if you could, you know, start us off, you know, what what were those early years like in, uh, in culinary? What inspired you, you know, to become a chef and chase this as a career? Um, my early years in culinary. So I've got a kind of a, a roundabout way of, of getting involved, but, um, I guess it all started in the kitchen with my mom when I was a kid. Um, I was, you know, I, I was a chubby little kid and I was always eating and I was always getting stuck in, in the kitchen and getting in trouble. And, um, I just love food. Uh, I, I couldn't get enough of it. Hence why I was probably a little chubby kid, but, um, so there was always, there was always something there. I just didn't really, I didn't know anyone that was in the hospitality industry or in that career path. So it never really dawned on me to take it as a career uh, mm-hmm. when I was young. Um, and then I guess fast forward a little bit, you know, I, I kind of went through high school and, you know, I played sports and school was never really my thing. Um, and then when I finished high school, I didn't really know what the hell to do. So um, my, my parents kind of thought it might be a good idea to, to look at chefing a, a, as a thing. Now, bear in mind, this is, um, what is this? I graduated high school. So this is like 98, 99. There was no real rock star chefs at that time. I think like at that point, I think Emmer Lagasse was on the Food Network and I thought he was pretty cool. You know, like there wasn't, um, they, they weren't what it is today. It wasn't, it wasn't a rock star scene. So um, I, I took their advice, went to culinary school, didn't like it, um, didn't get it. None of it made sense. And then, um, yeah, from from there, I didn't, I didn't really fall into cooking yet I, I went overseas i played i played some rugby overseas and kind of forgot about cooking for a while and then fast forward a few years later i i i fell into cooking again and just kind of from there decided to make a to make a go of it um you know i was i was in my mid-20s at that point and i was i needed to do something and i needed to be good at something i didn't want to be mediocre so um i just figured cooking was was the 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 route for that. And I, I kind of, I, I went for it from there. Awesome. And then kind of like, as you were journeying through life and, and doing all sorts of different things in terms of like rugby, traveling the world, were you still, you know, pursuing like eating, going out to restaurants? Were you still like intrigued by food? Were you still familiarizing yourself with it or was it not really there? Not as much as I should have. I think my travels later on in life, my travels and food made more sense what I was seeing. But at the time, I was very focused on, on, on playing sport and that was it. Um, and then same way when I fell into food, I just became my focus point. So from then on, um, when, when it was it for food, then I, you know, because I started cooking a little bit later as well, I, I I really focused, like I read every book you could, I, I, on my days off, I was, you know, at the time I was going to the library looking up cookbooks because, you know, it wasn't an Amazon back then to buy them all. So um, I was reading about like, what, so what were split. those? Yeah, what were those uh, early cookbooks that you know really built that foundation for you? There was a few. Um, the biggest one, and one I still get infra- um, inspiration from, is definitely um, Michelle Bra's uh, first book. That 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 one's crazy. That's, I mean, there's still food in that book today. You could put it in a restaurant and 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 you know get get two stars from it. It's it's ridiculous, and it's over twenty years old. Uh, a lot of Gordon Ramsay's books back then were were a big uh, inspiration for me as well. Um, and Marco Pierre White had a, you know, had white heat come out back then. That was, that, that was uh, pretty incredible. And, and at that time in North America, kitchens were cooking like that either. So these guys were, you know, kind of idolized. And, and that's kind of what made me take the, take the step to move to the UK in the first place. So that's where I got the idea to move to the UK from seeing those guys um, and what they were doing. And so where did, so you were born in Canada? Yeah, I'm a Vancouver boy. I'm from the West Coast. So born and raised in just outside of Vancouver. Awesome. And then, you know, what what are those some some of those, you know, staples that you grew up on that, you know, here in America we would, you know, the the difference, you know, in terms of culture and stuff like that. But 
what was those those early childhood um you know staples that you remember or you were you know at least uh, your favorites yeah. i mean they're, they're probably it's all mom's cooking really i mean um suburban favorites really you know meatloaf sunday roast was definitely a big one i love that every weekend we'd have some kind of sunday roast and even to this day i wish um my mom lived in the city because i'd like to sit down and have a roast every sunday that's um, awesome yeah, stuff like that. Just, just, just my mom's cooking. Really, growing up, I mean, it's not like we were going out to fancy restaurants or anything like that. I, I didn't have any idea of this world back then. Um, so it was just kind of good home home cooking, really. And then, so you traveled to UK, and then is that where your culinary journey? You know, that's when you started taking things seriously. Yeah, that, that's when it really all started to. Uh, makes sense as well and that um you know I, I got I got lucky enough to get a job in um, in Edinburgh in Scotland for working for Tom Kitchen and that that that's when I realized that cooking was a profession and it wasn't a joke you know you couldn't you couldn't have a busy night and just you know go out and get on the piss and think you could be fine for service the next day like there you were starting at seven in the morning finishing at one in the morning and you were working hard like it wasn't it wasn't a joke you I mean that was the most stress I remember ever being under. Um, and you either, you either made it or you didn't. And it was very evident if you weren't going to make it very quickly. And, um, it, w- without that experience, I definitely wouldn't be where I am right now at all. And like, how, how either, did that I opportunity, guess, kind of, you know, stumble into your lap? Were you kind of searching out for these restaurants, sending your resume or just, you know, right place, right time type yeah. of thing? No, I, I searched that one out for sure. There was a, a magazine publication back then called Hotel and Caterer or the Caterer magazine. And it had, uh, it had like ones to watch and he had just opened his restaurant, like I think three or four months before that. Um, and I was at the time living in the Channel Islands, uh, just off the coast of France in a small island called Guernsey. Uh, and I read this magazine, um, saw what he was doing. And I had always wanted to go to Edinburgh. I've got, I've got family lineage from there. I've always wanted to travel to Scotland. Um, so I was reading the magazine, saw what he was doing. The next day, me and my boss at the time, we, we, we quit our jobs, drove across Europe for a month. And then when we took the ferry back over from um, Rotterdam to Hull, there was, a, there was a bus going to Edinburgh. So my mate got in his car, he drove to London, I got on the bus, I ended up in Edinburgh. And then um, I ended up getting a, getting a stage at the kitchen. They couldn't hire anyone. So I just kept showing up for a month every day until someone got fired and uh, spot became available and then I got hired and then I was with him for almost four years. Wow. What an incredible story. How was that first, you know, f- first day to like the end of that month, uh, in terms of like, you know, were you, everything was completely new to you? Like how did everything. you take on the challenges, you know, was being s- somewhat in at, you know, in athletics and sports eased you in, into that, you know, stressful, high pressure, high, f- you know, quick, quick thinking, uh, type of environment. Yeah. I think, I mean, playing at a decent level in sports does teach you, you know, it teaches you how to take a bollocking properly and, and take criticism, you know, like, um, that's definitely something that would have helped. Um, but everything there was new. I mean, even their terminology for certain things, you don't know what the hell they're talking about. Um, I remember one time that he yelled at me to grab, run in the fridge to grab the brambles. And so I just ran in the fridge and then I realized once I was in the fridge, I didn't know what the hell a bramble was. So I just kind of hung out in there until someone else came in the fridge. And I was like, what the hell's a bramble? He's like, it's a, it's a blackberry, you dick. Like, just grab him and go back out there. He's waiting for you. Um, so little things like that um, was definitely a bit of a culture shock. But yeah, I, I learned everything. I mean, I remember rocking up to the, to the stage. I had, I had two knives, two global knives, and I thought I was a rock star. And I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Um, and it's the still first a good start was, to start off with that, with that it means you've done some research, right? I mean, that's, uh, Anthony Bourdain's, uh, go-to knives is that he recommends for any chef to start off with are the globals. Yeah, I know. But in a professional kitchen there, there, um, it wasn't the right ones for that place. That's for sure. But, um, yeah, I mean, everything from, you know, wrapping herbs properly and, and, and just kitchen etiquette, like just shut up and get it done kind of thing. You know, it was a hard kitchen and, and, but it was a good, uh, good base of knowledge. And it's like I said, if I didn't work there for the, that amount of time, I, it wouldn't have given me, um, like the strength of, um, mind to keep going in this profession for sure. 
And then, so you got hired on as a co-me or what position did you, you kind of started off and then where did you (laughs) end up? Back in the day, back in the day in that kitchen, there wasn't really any positions. You just showed up and you worked. And like, I mean, people kind of took on positions and there was a more senior guy and a less senior guy, but we didn't actually have titles. We just, um, we were just like, you're on a section. Like if you're on Grand Manger or you're in the pastry or you're on the sauce, you're cooking the fish. Um, Oh, you're cooking the veg, but we didn't have per se um, titles. But I would say, I mean, if you look at it that way, I would have definitely started out as a commie and and left as probably, I guess you could say, kind of like a junior sous. I, I was kind of, I, I'd done every section and I was on the pass with the chef most nights. Um, yeah, but that 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 was um, the wild west back then in that kitchen. It was it was brutal. I, I loved it, but yeah it was well what were you guys working with like uh you know french tops was it you know brasserie open fire or yeah it was french tops it was really classic it it was a tiny little kitchen um i mean now he's he's built an empire and it's completely changed it's it's an amazing i've been back a few times um but we had god what did we have in that kitchen we had two, two french tops and a single like large gas burner for stocks and that was uh, and two drop down ovens, uh, and that was it. Some fridge space under the benches, a walk in fridge, um, and a big butcher's block, and that that was about it. Like we didn't have much going on at all. There was wow. there was a there was a sous vide machine, um, but there was no water bath, so we would just use it to pack things down. Like we weren't cooking sous vide back then at all. We were just cooking you know everything in a pan and bang it in the oven or old school long braises or you know, stocks t- ticking away overnight. There was no rationales or, you know, fancy ovens. There was, there was nothing. And kind of going back to, you know, that, that earlier time in terms of like, just me being interested since I wasn't quite yet uh, in any chef role or anything like that to really see what was going on. But, you know, in terms of sourcing and forging and being in a, you know, a fine dining environment, how was that, you know, how did those relationships get built? Uh, especially in that restaurant and uh well he he had a pretty good i mean like for instance one of my mates in the kitchen his dad was our gamekeeper so his dad ronnie would come in at seven or eight in the morning with a fresh kill from from the fields like about the 2k away so he'd come in with grouse snipe woodcock teal you know wood pigeon hair all shot that morning um we'd have fishmongers that would just drive up in a small van with the fresh catch of the day and we, we would know what's coming in because they'd call the chef or they'd call my chef Tom um, just when they left the dock. So we'd know what, he, what they had. Um, everything was very small. Um, we, we didn't have a lot of big suppliers. I mean, there's the big, you know, the normal dry store suppliers and whatever. That's the big ones. But most of the suppliers are really small and really niche. So the stuff we were using was the best stuff you can get. I've never seen produce that, that's been that good ever. That's amazing. And especially doing, you know, pre-high-tech uh, internet uh speeds was pretty incredible yeah there was nothing there there was nothing everything was like i mean we had we had our knives a spoon uh some tongs and some towels and some pans that was it there was nothing there was no gizmos or gadgets that's for sure and then what were you guys you know what was the cuisine of that kitchen and what were you guys you know um his biggest thing is um and it still is today it's from nature to plate so it's about taking scottish produce um, putting it on the plate as simply as possible using the French techniques that he was trained in. So, um, I mean, we had a dish that, geez, i got to remember back now, but um, I think it was called haggis, neeps, and patties. So it was like foie gras with pickled pickled turnips and like a, this potato lattice um, and uh, this little um, like croquette made from from haggis. Uh, and for, that, every, again, for everybody makes, who doesn't it, it know sense. what haggis is, like me, what is that like a wild so, ha- ha- Haggis is delicious. No, haggis is delicious. It's a, it's a Scottish. Um, uh, I mean, you're not going to see it much si- outside of Scotland. It's a Scottish de- delicacy. So it's basically everything inside of a lamb: the heart, the sh- the, the lungs, the liver, the kidneys, um, all cooked inside of its stomach. It's kind of like a it's kind of like a meatloaf, kind of. Got it. Just, uh, oh, just with all the innards. All so the like a, like yeah, a blood delicious. pudding almost. It's to that extent. Yeah, you use all you use all the weird bits and you make it taste good. Nice. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, that's amazing that they were utilizing, you know, whole concepts and everything that, you know, kind of today 
you can categorize as like modern, you know, uh, you know, nose to tail cooking and farm to table cooking. Yes. That's all been already happening at, you know, these fine dining establishments. Well, I mean, that was, and that kind of cooking has been around for, for, for years and years and years. I think just people just got, you know, away from it because it takes a, it's a lot of hard work and you got to know what you're doing to pull it off. So, but I, I think there's people learning that now that want that needs to come back a little bit, but yeah, back then that was, um, in the UK, in the UK, it was more common, but definitely not in North America. Yeah. So four years there you worked and then what were, you know, what was the next adventure? Uh, after that it was Australia for me. So I, um, I was pushing 30 and at that time you could get a, you could get a visa if you're a Canadian, if you're under 30 to go, to go over there and work. So, um, made sense. I, I got the visa relatively easily and I, I just bought a ticket and moved to Melbourne. And was there any chefs or restaurants that, you know, were drawing you there or was this just, you know, where life was taking you? Yeah. So my, my flatmate in Edinburgh was an Aussie and he, he told me about some really cool chefs doing some um, interesting things in, in Melbourne and Sydney. So I knew there was a food scene um, uh, up and coming definitely. Um, and I decided to go to Melbourne because uh, there was a few places there that I liked to look at. There was a chef named Andrew McConnell that was making a name for himself. And he, he's like, a, he's a legend there now. Um, and I ended up, as soon as I arrived, I got a job with a chef who just done a stint with Michel Bra in, in, in France. So um, there was definitely a lot of, I think it's similar to how, how, how you know, in, in, in New York and Chicago, a lot, of, a lot of guys go away and come back and they bring back what they learned overseas. And that was happening in Melbourne when I got there. So it was, it was a pretty cool time to be there for sure. And that was around 2000 and 2010. And, you know, in terms of culture difference, food, you know, differences, what were, you know, some of those biggest changes? Because you're, you're kind of, you know, evolving your own style as you're hitting all these, you know, new culinary uh, experiences. Yeah, for sure. The Australian palate is definitely different than the Scottish palate. Um, so I went from, you know, the Scottish palate, everything's heavy. You know, it's always cold and miserable there. And the palate there is, like I said, it's, it's heavier, more denser foods. And you move to Australia and there, everything's a little bit more delicate, lighter. And there's a lot more um, Asian touches to the food there as well. So and that it was a big learning curve for me in that regard again, because um, it's a lot of stuff that I hadn't worked with either. So it, it was, it was a, a good learning curve to, to, um, to go through. And then what, what, uh, you know, what was di dinner service? Like how many covers were you guys doing back then in terms of, you know, like a busy Saturday night? So that, that first restaurant I went to, I didn't actually stay there that long. Well, it wasn't a good fit for me, but two, two of the guys in that kitchen that I met, um, who are, who are some of my best friends now, one is Adam Liston, who runs a place in Adelaide and the other one, Marty Forbes is one of the best pastry chefs I've ever seen. Uh, he's got his own, um, bakery in Melbourne. They, um, or sorry, Maddie got me on to the opening crew of um, Gordon Ramsay who was opening a restaurant in Melbourne. So I, I jumped ship and I was part of the opening team there. And that place we were doing, I would say about 120, 130 covers a night. That's busy. What it kind of busy. crew did you guys, you know, start off with then? We had a bigger brigade there. It was, it was a bit of a line system, one that I hadn't really seen before. So. God, looking back, I was I was I was so in the shit when I was there. It's, I'm trying to remember. Um, I'd say we would run a service with probably twelve to fifteen people, plus a few on pastry. Yeah, no, definitely. And yeah, then it, it, was, it was a uh, proper line. Chefs tasting uh, menu or a la carte or kind of both. They they had a t it. It was kind of the menu was derived so you could kind of choose your own tasting menu. So it was split into like five or six sections, and each section had a few choices. Mm -hmm. So I mean really cool from the customer's point of view. And it was a, it made the kitchen, every table was like a tasting menu, but you know, slightly different. So slightly different. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was a, it was a cool, uh, cool idea. It didn't really work, but, um, um, if it was finessed a little bit more, it could have been really, really, really successful. I think. And did you get, you know, the pleasures of working with, uh, Gordon Ramsay side by side or, or, no, he, at that point he was a businessman. So he was down there for the opening and he mm -hmm. came through the kitchen and, you know, he's got his energy about him. He's, 
he, he's he's a beast when he walks. He's a big man. I don't know if anyone's ever actually seen like this guy, but like he, he's a beast. He's like six three, solid two hundred pounds. Like he's a big boy. Um, but he he was an absolute gentleman when he came to the kitchen. He was lovely. He was nice to be around, and and he just sent everyone buzzing. So, but like I said, at that point he was a businessman. He wasn't in the kitchen. He was there for the he was there for the um, the TV crews and whatnot. So we didn't we didn't work so much side by side. Got it. And you know what. What was, uh, you know, some of the biggest takeaways that you got, you know, working out under that kitchen and under, you know, those chefs that, you know, he must have selected himself, right? Yeah, he did. I mean, Josh Emmett was the uh, the executive chef there and he'd worked for him for over 10 years. Um, and a couple of the other guys came from New York that were working for his place there. So that, that kitchen had a lot of really strong chefs. I mean, there's a couple there now, Jamie, who's running uh, Fiskabar in Copenhagen, my mate Emil who's got his own place in Randwick there in, in Sydney. They, um, yeah, that team was strong. I think um, the biggest takeaway I had from there, and I've, I've said this before, and it, it doesn't sound like it's a positive, but I mean, for me professionally, it's a positive, is they they were cooking, I guess, more British food, and they were cooking it for the Australian palate. And I don't think the Australian palate understood it or, or appreciated it. So I don't think it was a good fit for the clientele. Mm-hmm. but then you know that's something that you know chefs need to learn as well right you're, you're not cooking for yourself right it's it is it's a fine balance right of how much creativity you input and then where you kind of lose your guests and lose the whole point of the experience yeah i mean like i mean it's easy to cook for yourself you know what you like right but on the other side of the play you gotta you gotta keep the you gotta keep the punters happy too so so Australia yeah. treating you well? Were you you after uh, you know working at Gordon Ramsay spot? What was uh, what was kind of the next uh, stepping stone in the career? Yeah, so after that, I was only there. the The visa system there, you can only work for six months for an employer unless you get sponsored. So I was there for that amount of time, and then I ended up I jumped around a couple of kitchens, and I ended up getting a a sponsorship and working for. A chef who's to this day one of my biggest mentors and and a, and a and a friend, Scotty Pickett. So I ended up um, again starting from scratch, starting as a you know a, as a commie CDP in a, in a small place called Estelle with with Scott. He was the head chef and owner, um, and I ended up staying with him for over four years um, through two restaurants, Estelle, and then I helped him open. Uh, another place that's now shut called St. Crispin's and that place we, I mean, we got best restaurant of the year and um, Australia has a hat system as opposed to Michelin star system. So they have one, two or three hats. So uh, we were, we were pretty lucky. We got, we got best new restaurant and then two hats within the first six months. It was, it was a, a crazy time. How, how did you guys uh, party, party that one? That was, you know what? We were so bloody busy that we didn't really celebrate it as much as we probably should have. Like, um, yeah, because we, we had to open the doors the next day after the awards ceremony. So it wasn't um, it wasn't as rock and roll as it probably should have been. That's for sure. Pretty interesting. But they uh, do they have Michelin now or they're still just no. uh, on the hat rating? Yeah, they have the good food guide and they have the hat system. But Michelin hasn't gone to Australia yet. I, I can't see it going there. I, I don't think it will. Um, but there's definitely restaurants there that, that warrant two or three stars for sure. There's, there's some of the, the food scene in Australia is just going from strength to strength right now. It's just getting better. And is it very like, you know, was this restaurant located in a city or, you know, kind of more rural farm, farm, like uh farm to table concept no, it was in the city. It was just outside of the Melbourne city center. So it was pretty, yeah, it was just slightly on the, on the outskirts of the city. So it was still pretty close. Yeah. Nice. That's awesome. What was, uh, you know, did you have any, like kind of looking back any like million dollar bites that you were like, this, this dish is perfect. Like, I can't believe never would have thought about these combinations kind of where like you were really, you know, excited about this, uh, dish that you guys put on the menu. There was a dish that he used to do. It was a tartar dish. It was just, um, like, uh, uh, he did a cool thing with tartar where he always cured the meat first. So he didn't serve it quite raw. So it was always cured first. And that's something that I do a lot now too. But we used to get this Wagyu brizola that used to come in. And he added it to that with like a, 
uh, a beetroot and red currant puree and then like shaved uh, Tasmanian truffles. And it was like ridiculous. Like you don't, you'd almost order, you'd almost hope you over prep a little bit that night. So there's some left over so you can snack on it at the end of service. Cause that, that, that was just ridiculous. And Tasmanian truffles are incredible. They're very, very good. That's the first I hear where, where are they, uh, where are they actually coming from in terms of so t- t- from, from Tasmania? So they're, Tasmania is a small, uh, smaller island off the coast of, of Australia, but um, the truffles coming out of there because I, I think the conditions for truffles there is perfect. It's not, it's not warm. It has pretty rough winters, um, and the terrain's pretty rugged. So they they grow some amazing truffles and, and and the stuff. I mean, we got them pretty fresh, right? It wasn't far for the, tra- the truffles to travel. You get French or Spanish or Croatian truffles here and there. They've they've had to take some time in transit, but that stuff was just picked and straight to our door. Right. So, so your shelf life is pretty crazy much longer on that as well i'm assuming yeah i mean you know the just the aromats that come off of it are that much stronger wow that's that's uh i gotta put that one on my bucket list because it's the first i hear of that we usually uh in chicago here getting you know from umbria uh italy that's flown in directly but other than that it's pretty hard to source anything france and anything other than that is going to be super high priced in terms of like bringing it into your restaurant, having it as a supplement. Yeah, the, the, ta- the Tassie ones, if you can get a, get a hold of them, you should try them. They're, they're, they're definitely worth a, worth a go. Yeah, def- definitely. I'm, uh, I'm excited to, to, and they have the same seasons. So they'll have like, you know, your summer, your winter, your spring, more or less. Ah, oh, God, I'm trying to remember back now. I think they just had, <clears throat> I just remember it just being, uh, the, the uh, winter tazzies if i'm right i could be wrong someone's gonna send me a message and call me an idiot but um i just remember getting tazzy truffles in and i can't even remember what time of year it was um but they were they were stunning yeah so i i don't remember there being summer summer truffles from from tasmania but i mean there could be now i don't know right no that's very interesting and then just shows how how much you learn good just by like traveling around and just you know kind of taking in that culture and, and really being able to move around. But like you did stick around, you know, for, you know, four years here, four years here, you know, what were some of those things that, you know, I, I think a lot of chefs find it hard after that, you know, like one year mark where you're comfortable, but like you're still not being able to give your input, uh, you know, as much as you'd like, you know, what were some of those things and, and how did you deal with that? when you were trying to get a little bit more recognition, a little bit more say, uh, after kind of putting yeah, in your I time. Think, I think it's, it's, I think a lot of young chefs need to realize that, you know, it, it's a catchphrase, but it's a marathon, not a race, right? If you're in such a rush to do these things, you need to take a step back. And the chefs that I picked to work under, and I was lucky enough to work under, I held in such high regard that I didn't feel the need to put my opinions or my ideas onto their food. Cause I was still learning every day from them. I didn't, I was no rush to, you know, to, to be the person running the kitchen when I already knew the person that running it on top of me was still someone I could learn from. So if, if you find yourself after a year questioning the chef you're working under, I think it's time for you to change. Like you gotta, you gotta work under someone that you, you have no doubt that what they're saying or what they're doing is stuff that you're still learning from. When you stop that learning and you think it's time for, for you to put stuff on the menu, you either, either take that step up in another position or you find someone else to work for. And I was lucky the guys that I chose to work for it, you know, I was with them for a long time because I had a lot to learn and, and, and I knew that. So I was in no rush to, to jump the gun. And then in terms of, uh, you know, learning, what, what are we talking about? You know, what were some of those, uh, fundamental techniques that you learned and, and, um, you know, skills and management that really are defining your cuisine today? I think skills and management is stuff that I, I'm learning more and more now than I was back then. But I think with them and, and with anything I learned from them was just repetition, um, doing it again and again and again and being faster and faster and faster. And, and, and I was lucky in both those kitchens, they were both very much um, uh, whole animal kitchens. So we would get everything in and we utilize every aspect. So we would always, you know, get whole lambs or whole rabbits or, or you know, um or in australia we'd get like kangaroo legs coming in or wallabies and learning how to use all that kind of stuff or whole birds and aging the birds and ducks and all this stuff so there was there was always something going on and some old school skill or technique that i wanted to learn and 
keep learning until I got like super comfortable with it. So there was always something I was, I was kind of being fanatical about and wanted to get better and better. So, yeah, I think um, that definitely extends your ex- experience when you're, you are getting these whole animals because, you know, I'll say a lot of restaurants, you know, in Chicago that I've worked with, we don't, you know, we don't get a bird with feathers and all because mm-hmm. it's just too much to, you know, kind of process in house. And it's really, it's a lot, even to scale a fish inside, you know, a restaurant, if you don't have like a fish room, you know, it's, it's a lot of extra cleanup that you need to do um, that a lot of chefs, you know, opt in to get from, you know, the fish supplier already, you know, scaled or gutted or already, you know, fillets or whatnot. Yeah. I mean, but that's some, sometimes it's a, it's a smarter move financially as well. Cause you don't want to pay the labor for someone to fill the fish when it can be done for you, which I understand. But I think you just have to, when you're writing the menu, there has to be a, a fine line between how much of that you get done and how much of that you still use in the kitchen. Cause and anything, especially on, on the protein side and, and, and meat side that we get in whole, it's because I want to get it in because I want to use all the other bits that we're using and we're cleaning up and, you know, all, all, all the trim, all the, you know, like the pig's ears and the snouts and the trotters and all that kind of stuff. It, we get it in whole because we want to use all that stuff. And ordering that stuff is hard. You can't just, you, you know, it's hard to go down to your, you know, your, your meat guy and say, hey, I want to order like uh, a pig snout. But, you know, it's hard, but you can get a pig's head. It's easier. So, but that's, with, that's you know, with, we with that. that, do you find yourself like, you know, because a pig only has, you know, two years and one snout. Like, is that something that's going on the menu? Is that like a, a VIP special uh, kind of going out that night? Is that just for learning experience, you know, like R&D family? Meal? Well, that, that, that depends. That depends. And that's where you have to be smart with what you're doing. I mean, you can get, we can get a couple of pig trotters in, but um like, am I going to get seven portions out of one or, or am I going to serve it whole? Like, those are the questions you have to ask before you do it. And that's why it's interesting getting it in. Cause that's what you, you, that's why younger kids need to learn is not every cut is exactly the same. There's always something else you can do with it. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I, you know, I, I love everything I've been hearing, you know, in terms of, you know, bringing in the whole animals. I think that's uh, for anybody who's really hungry, that's definitely going to keep, and give them a little bit more skin in the game because they are learning and they're putting themselves through, you know, those more difficult tasks, uh, then, you know, portioning once you have a fillet and once you, you know, kind of broken things down, it's, it's much easier. But when you have the whole animal, you know, you sometimes have to go with a saw or something like that. And that kind of brings that, I don't know, that, that rawness back into the kitchen. And I think it builds a strong foundation for, you know, chefs, that are able to, you know, bring that down the line. Yeah, it does. And I mean, I, I wish we could do more whole animals than we do already, but like, at the end of the day, we still have to do, you know, we, we have to be able to use it smartly on a menu too. So we do it as much as we can to be feasible, but um, at any time, if we can get it in whole, we will for sure. And then with using like all the innards and stuff like that, you know, when I see, you know, all the, chef tv celebrity shows and they, and they show all the innards and livers and stuff like that you'll have the chefs you know kind of like smidge on that how did you get acquainted to that did you always kind of have a taste for you know like liver and hearts and 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 uh you know the offals or did that kind of grow on you and like you learned like with different techniques I think it, and it, it grows on it, it grows on you when you when someone shows you how to make it that knows what they're doing and you realize the flavor you can get from it. And in terms of think, Yeah, yeah, definitely. When you're putting that stuff like the livers and the kidneys, when you're putting that in a farce to make a, you know, a sausage or to you know to to, to do shoe farce or like stuffed cabbage and things like that, without those kidneys it's not the same, it's not as good. Like you don't need to know that it's in there. But when it is in there, the flavor is incredible and it also gives a texture and it's a mouthfeel. It changes everything. So it's not using it for wow factor and to be cool, but it, it's using it because it literally makes what's on the plate taste better. No, for sure. And it, and it definitely probably brings in a lot of nutritional value that people have been missing out on in terms of, you know, just the different mineralities in the different uh, organs that we yeah. have. Right. So it, it would do. And, and also, you know, you're already paying for it. So you, you kind of, from a, from a financial standpoint, you, you need to figure out a way to use it to make money too. Right. Yeah. 
I mean, uh, are, are those little pies that you get you guys make? Or is, is that you know like a pate, uh, forced oh, meat or something? The pativiers. That's um, that's pigeon pigeon breast with uh, f- stuff with foie gras, and then wrapped around it is uh, like a chicken mousseline. Um, and then on the side of that, which is in some of the photos, but on the side of that, we take um, the hearts and 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 livers from the bird, and we make a little sausage, and then we stuff that inside the leg, and then serve that on the side. So again, nothing goes to waste, and then the carcass goes into making the sauce and um yeah there's no waste yeah that sounds like a lot of prep time to go into it's a fair bit of work yeah yeah it it is a bit of work but you know it's it's something that attracts staff they want to learn how to make it um and you know it's something that people especially in north america don't see that kind of technique that much here so um you know it gets people's attention as well and it just it tastes good no i it looks delicious i mean you guys have to check out uh chef's instagram it's it's completely uh foodie paradise it's gonna make you drool i'm uh i'm excited I've, i haven't been to canada yet but when i make up there uh, i'll definitely uh come and visit you but as we kind of get back yeah. to the to to you know uh the timeline you know after australia what what brought you back to you know uh toronto canada um Long story short, so after uh, Australia, I had a, I'd actually um, agreed to open up a restaurant in Paris, and that fell through. Okay. Long story short, because of uh, some visa issues, um, they couldn't get a visa in time, and so I ended up moving back to Vancouver, uh, back home, and I wasn't ready to stay at home yet, and I got a job in the Middle East, so I, I went out to the Middle East for just over a year, um, and then. The Middle East was a humbling experience. It was, it was great in many ways, but it, a year was enough for me. Uh, and then I came back home again to Vancouver, hung out with my family a little bit, because obviously I've been overseas for a long time. I don't get to see them a lot. Um, and then this job came up at Canoe, and um, my, my boss, the district exec over here, John Horn, um, we had a phone call. Uh, we both got on really well on the phone call. He said, like, look, we'll fly you out, spend a couple of days here. See, see how you like it, cook some food for us. And that was it. I came over, did it, got the job. And then, um, yeah, here I am four, four years later, still there. Wow, I love, I, I just, for me, it's so hard to, to stay in one spot uh, that, you know, when I hear another chef kind of g- having these, and, and a lot of chefs that are, you know, really good at their game and have a lot of, you know, accolades do really have that long periods of times where they're really able to, um, you know, you've been there so long that you are, you are inputting your, your own, you know, personal self right into that restaurant mm-hmm. because you, mm-hmm. you, I mean, you're there for four years, right? I mean, that's, that's an incredible amount of time and how many people you've trained and how many people went through the kitchens and how many different menus you've done. I mean, that's, that's incredible. Yeah, it's been a, I mean, Canoe's a bit of a special place. It's, it's the longest running fine dining restaurant in Canada, unless I'm wrong. And I think in its 26 years, it's only had, I think I'm the, I'm the fifth head chef. So, I mean, they keep people at the helm for, for quite a long time and for good reason. I mean, it's, um, it's, it, it offers a lot. It's, it's a pretty special place. It's, you know, it sits on the 54th floor overlooking the whole city. Um, you know, we've got a nice big kitchen and I mean, we're busy. We work like maniacs, but, um, you know, it, it also gives us something to, to look forward to coming to every day. So, yeah, it's a nice place. So definitely, if you're if you if you're up here at any time, um, let me know. And we'll, we'll we'll get you sorted and get you. Oh, a hundred percent. I would. Uh, yeah. Super excited. I'm I'm actually uh, interested. I don't know if you've ever seen this uh, Netflix show, or it might not be on Netflix at all. But uh, it's called The Wild Chef, and it's uh, it's a it's a Canadian chef uh, in Quebec. Who just like uses an absurd amount of foie gras and everything? Oh, uh, Martin Picard, I think Martin Picard, a big, a big heavy guy, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's 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 a he uses a. You're right. It's an absurd amount of foie gras, but he he's a legend. He's he's very famous here, and um, he he knows what he's doing. He's very talented. Yeah, I just love that he's just got that vibe to him. Like he doesn't. He's the person that cooks for himself, and then he's like, if you guys want to enjoy it, enjoy it, but. 
and I'm going to keep doing Yeah, but this. everything he cooks is delicious. It's just, I mean, you can eat it once and you, you have to, you know, you have to take a few days off, right? Like yeah. it's, it's uh, full on. Yeah. But uh, yeah, he, he's, a, he, he's a beast for sure, that guy. Have you ever gotten uh, to go out to, to any of his spots or is he more just, he's a little bit too far out for you? Uh, no, he's out. He's one of his main places is based in Montreal. Montreal is about a five and a half hour drive from here. It's not that far or like a 45 minute flight. I, I have eaten at one of them and it was delicious. It's decadent. Excuse me. It's decadent and very rich. Um, you need to have a nap after you eat there, but it's a, it's definitely, it's, it's an experience and one that you should, you should um, try if you're ever in Montreal. Montreal is an amazing place. It's, um, it's like being in Europe. It's very cool. And the, the food scene there is incredible. Oh, no, I, I'm, I'm, I've been watching it. I, Canada's been doing, I mean, you guys have been doing a lot of things. It's just hard to get a lot of, uh, you know, s- the material that you guys are doing here in the States in terms of like what we have available to us uh, from what we see, you know, in terms of mm-hmm. what's influencing us in, in the industry. You guys have been doing a lot of things um, in terms of like, you know, going Montreal or Quebec and uh, Toronto you know, the weather change and does that really, you know, have a big significance on the way you guys look at cuisine and what you guys are able to source? Uh, sourcing wise, we've got some pretty good suppliers in Canada. So, I mean, even sourcing for me at Canoe, we, we source stuff from, from coast to coast to get what we need here. So we have some amazing suppliers that help us with that. Um, I mean, you will see slight differences. I think if you go, if you eat in Vancouver or if you eat in Toronto, definitely if you eat in, in Montreal, they have their own food scene completely. It's, it's a very European vibe there. Um, weather-wise, I mean, we're, our weather is pretty similar to, to, to Quebec. Uh, Vancouver just rains every day, pretty much. Um, and there's a massive Asian influence in Vancouver. They've got some incredible um, Chinese and Japanese and Korean food there. Some of the best I've ever had um and then t- toronto is just a mix we have like y- you name the culture we have it in toronto it's incredible like to, to go out and eat in toronto you can have everything from like uh the the best like jerk chicken or uh caribbean food you've ever had to you know great indian food mexican food chinese japanese like greek like toronto has every ethnicity you can think of doing something at a very very high level it's, it's a pretty fun city to be in are you, are you a fan of Drake by any chance? I, I think by, by default I'm supposed to be, but uh, I mean, he's all right. He's not, it's not really my thing, but I, I remember when he was making a big splash here back in the day, but I was overseas at that point. So I think I missed the, the show. Missed, missed the climb up on that. No, yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah. Well, what's, uh, what, what do you like in terms of music? What's your, what's your vibe? I like old school hip hop. Old school hip hop. Always have, like in the '90s, especially that's when I was a teenager and I was listening to all that stuff. Um, and I still love all that old school hip hop and R&B for sure. Nice, awesome. Is there any like Canadian old school hip hop you like, or or that's not really a thing? Uh no. I mean, it, it, it definitely is. Uh, like God, who's way back in the day? Old school Toronto hip hop would be like Maestro Fresh West and stuff like that. I don't know if you if, if you know who he is. Maybe a little bit. I do not, but I'll you, definitely but, uh, take a look into it. Yeah, you should, man. He's he's wicked. Um, yeah, there's a lot. I mean, ter- ter- especially in Toronto, had a had a pretty cool hip hop scene back in the day. Um, but uh, I was stuck in Vancouver back then. But yeah, there's some de- there's some cool tunes from that. But I love that that era of music for sure. I mean, even in '90s, you know, um, there was good rock music and and that too. You know, all that grunge stuff was pretty stellar. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I'm glad to hear. Uh... I'm too, you know, I like old, old and new uh, hip hop, but definitely in that category. Um, I think it gives you a little bit of relief hearing a little how other people are stressing out in their life. And you can kind of relate to that, I think, especially being in the industry. Um, we have a old buddy of mine tuning in, Ramon, and he's asking, what are some of the core skills that you've learned throughout your experiences? Core skills. Um... Like I think, I think what would what makes a great chef, right? If, if, if that or or I guess you could keep it uh, to uh, the core skills. I, I, I mean, what makes a great chef? Jesus, I don't know. Like, um, like what are those think, core think, skills that you you saw from your mentors? You know, with all the experiences that you know really shaped you, right? Because 
you know, that saying you're only as good as your, you know, your five closest friends, um, you know, or five mentors or whatever kind of reference, uh, what were those kind of things that you took away from them that? Yeah, I think, I mean, the biggest things I I learned and the guys I worked under was that their grasp of um, classical French cuisine and doing the basics properly and not cutting corners were things that I took with me and I still do. And I think th- th- those are the best things. If you, if you don't know, you know, if you don't know where you came from, you're not going to figure out where you're going. Right. So um, depending on what kind of cuisine you want to go down, it, you, you need to learn where it came from, learn those basics well, and, um, and learn it from someone that knows what they're doing. And that's, you, you need a solid foundation and don't be in a rush to learn it either. If it's going to take you five or 10 years, let it take you five or 10 years. Cause it's all well and good being a head chef when you're 22, but you know, you're not going to be any better when you're 29 or 30. Oh yeah. Like you gotta, you gotta slow down a little bit and, and, and learn not, not be in such a rush. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I love what you're saying. It, it is really hard though. especially just like, I was thinking back when I was like, you know, 18, 19, uh, 20, trying to, you know, be the next sous chef. And kind of like fighting for that position. But I, I think you're exactly right because there, I think I missed a lot of uh, key, you know, skills or techniques or maybe interactions that I could have had had my head been focused on, you know, becoming the best line cook at that time and not like trying to move up and, and get that name on the jacket. Because once you get it, you realize that it really doesn't mean anything if you don't have that foundation, if you, ha- you have those, you know, values and uh well, no, and, and, and if, if you're if you're then, you know, at that point and, and, and you're supposed to then teach people underneath you, you can't teach them because you don't know. And it just, you know, it just keeps that horrible cycle going, right? Yeah, 100%. I've definitely uh, had to to swim, uh, swim or sink a couple moments in my career, but I was able to manage and uh, put through. I like, you know, always trying to see, you know, I look at my career as like I've never really failed any any big which means like i haven't really really pushed too hard so i'm always like Mm -hmm. trying to see where am i gonna like really fail or or, like stumble in terms of kitchens and i mean so far it's been good obviously you have your you know weak weaker days and you you mess up on things which is completely fine as long as you own up to you know your mistakes and you tell chef and you go about it the right way um well this the the sooner you tell them the better right right any, you're any... you're going to get yelled at either way. It doesn't matter, but what, what, what you're going to get yelled at a lot worse if it's a lot closer to service, you know? Do you have any, like, moments like that where, like, you know, you, you know, I've heard stories of, like, you know, dropping uh, a 24-quart a of Vilju down the stairs and... Oh, I've uh, had, yeah, I've had my fair share. I remember we were, um, we were in, in the shade in, in, at work, and this is in Edinburgh, I'd come around from the dish area holding a bunch of things, and one of them was a massive Le Creuset pot and um, all the kitchen, most of the kitchen equipment that we were working on was bought from Pierre Kaufman's old restaurant in London, Le Tante Claire. So all these pots and pans had been used by Gordon Ramsay and Marco Pierre White and like all these famous chefs. And I, I came around the corner, running around the corner because I was in the shit and, and Tom's pregnant wife came around the corner at the same time. So I just had to stop in my tracks and I dropped it and I broke it. And I was... Uh, I, I, that was a bad day. That wasn't that wasn't a fun experience. Yeah, no, I could definitely imagine uh, the gut drop feeling there. That was horrible. And he didn't even say anything. He just, you know, yeah, he just looked at me, and I was just like, Fuck, like this is bad. Well, that's Sorry, uh, that's yeah. awesome. Is there any you know any uh, books you've read lately, or you know what what are those? Um, kind of um, knowledge seeking spots that you go for in terms like to reference recipes, to come up with new ideas, keep being inspired. Yeah. I mean, um, one of my favorite books is, is David Kinch's book from Manresa. That's a, that one I look at a lot. I, I love that one. Um, I'd say uh, there's an old book from a few years ago now by Tom Akins. That was really good. Um, Pascal Barbeau's book from La Strance is, is pretty cool. Um, and then we have some Canadian guys too, like Stefan Modat has a couple books that's all about Canadian cuisine. Um, there's a book written by a famous uh, French restaurant in Montreal called Toquet. Um, that's incredible and incredibly underrated. The, 
the, the French food that they're doing there with all completely local um, Quebecois and Montreal ingredients is is um, crazy. And for me, trying to cook Canadian food, that's like an encyclopedia for me. So that's another really cool one. But yeah, I read a lot of books. I, I have a pretty big collection. I think it's a good thing for, I mean, I don't think chefs should read a book and think they can do it. They need to work in the right kitchen and learn from the right people. But, you know, reading a book and learning something and getting questions that they can ask or or want to learn because they've seen something in a book, I think that's the right reason to, to get your head buried and, and, and just learn and read and as much as you can and ask as much as you can. Yeah, no, I've, I've definitely uh, always loved growing my uh, cookbook chef collection. Uh, so I'll be definitely checking out those. Super interested in actually, I don't have any cookbooks, you know, in terms of like Canadian fare and, um, you know, with all those different, you know, influences that you guys do have there, which is pretty incredible. Um, I'm definitely going to be checking, uh, checking a lot of that out, referencing, uh, you know, those books that you mentioned in terms of, you know, what do you, what's your, uh, what was kind of the COVID, uh, pivot? What, what was that like? How was that going through? I mean, it's still, it's still a thing for us when we're still not open yet. Um, okay. We, well, that's now, something new. Yeah. We're, we're, I think the longest city, uh, in, well, definitely in North America that has been shot, if not the world, we've been shot for over 300 and some odd days now. Wow. Um, patios just started to open up a couple weeks ago. So we're gunning for mid to end July that we can finally open up with limited seating and restaurants in Toronto. So yeah, it's it's changed everything. I mean, my brigade went from roughly, you know, six or seven sous chefs and about 25 cooks to me and two sous chefs. That's it. So, and it's just putting food in boxes and doing little kits for for home cooking. Um, which you know, it has its it has its creative aspects and you have to think completely differently, but at the end of the day, you're putting food in a box when you want to be putting it on a plate. So, um, it's been a and you guys are putting out uh, some beautiful, different. beautiful stuff. I mean, to for the t- you know takeaway. I mean, what I saw was like, wow, this is like top of the top. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty lucky. The two guys that I have had with me for the most time, Des Murphy and Eric Valente, they they've been with me for a good while at the restaurant, and they're they're amazingly talented cooks. So, um, you know, you're only as good as the guys you have beside you. And I've had them luckily for the whole time during COVID beside me, um, knocking out some stuff. So, so well, um, well, yeah. well, machine at this point. Yeah, they're great. They're great. Um, they know what I want. And sometimes they know it better than I do. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really lucky to have those guys for sure. That's awesome. So now you guys are kind of, uh, gearing up to like a full opening. Um, you know, what's, you guys going to be doing a tasting menu? Is that what you guys always did? Yeah, we're, I mean, we're going to roll it out slowly because I mean, everyone's going to be a little bit green. I think we're going to roll out for the first week or so tasting menu only. Uh, and then slowly work on an a la carte on top of that. And then, um, then lunches are going to come into play and private, you know, all the private dining room functions that we do plus weddings and everything. I mean, canoe's a beast of an operation. So once we start fully going again, it, it'll be, um, uh yeah pretty that's awesome and then throughout you know covid did you guys have any hard times like supplying you know the takeaway boxes or you know some produce have you seen you know prices uh skyrocket like we you know well like i've personally seen here in chicago in terms of like produce and and protein is like almost you know 40 50 percent up from where it was uh pre-covid yeah but everything's a little bit more expensive understandably i mean everywhere short staff so they got to pay the smaller amount of staff that they have a little bit better and prices need to go up and it's an inevitable change so hopefully the customers can understand that when we have to put our prices up a little bit um produce wise getting it we've been pretty lucky but we've also written menus that are a little bit simpler because they're going to the home cook so we weren't using elegant ingredients that are harder to get now Mm -hmm. In the next couple of weeks, that might be a different story. I'm telling you, because now I have to start getting in, in some more, you know, like elk and bison and pigeon and foie gras and stuff like that. And I'm reaching out to my suppliers now and finding out where they're sitting on everything. Um, and that might be another story. That might be a little bit harder to get stuff yeah. moving forward. So you can ask me that in two weeks, and I'll, I'll see where I'm at. I'll I'll uh, I'll follow up with a little post. See where uh, see where we're at. But yeah, that's definitely been the case. You know, here. Uh, 
you know, in Chicago, they got the green flag to, to fully open everything. And, you know, the memes rolled out that, you know, restaurants aren't, aren't fully staffed to, to fully, you know, do full capacity and bringing pe- people back, you know, the people that you had trained are, are gone. Maybe they're in different industries. So it's, uh, it's definitely been, it's much the same here. It's much the same here. We've lost, I mean, I'm part of a restaurant group and, and across the group, every single restaurant struggling to staff and it's spreading it thin. And I don't think it's just, I mean, it's, it's a worldwide problem now. I've got friends in London and Edinburgh and Melbourne and Sydney and everywhere struggling. It's, um, it's a, it's an issue for sure. And, and restaurants are having to like, you know, tightening up their hours of operation. You know, some restaurants have, aren't doing lunch services right now because they just can't do it. And, and people's expectations aren't lowering either. So yeah, um, if anything, they've, they've it's, gone it's higher because they've been cooking with the uh, chef's, chef's instructions at home, you know? Oh yeah. They're, they're all chefs now. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think the next the next while, I think everyone in this industry that's left is going to have uh, it's going to be a lot of frustrating times. So hopefully everyone um, is realistic about that and and can come out better after it because it's definitely been a, a hard hard year and a bit for for um, hospitality. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, I just saw Noma rolled out the the Noma project and they're going to be doing you know almost becoming like a a full on institution and rolling out their own. Uh, like oh, uh, the g- garums and yeah, stuff. the yeah, garums and and then that's pretty interesting. And you know, you see Daniel Hum in uh, Northbrook, uh, Northbrook, uh, New York, doing uh, you know completely vegetarian uh, vegan. menu, yeah, vegan plant based plant-based menu. Yeah. I, I mean, that's that's like huge in terms of like going through COVID and then just like putting that on top of yourself. Um, so yeah, he's it, got some ball. He's got some balls on him for sure. So I'm excited. I think everybody's really hungry to to show what, you know, the world's been missing, what their cities have been missing, their, you know, inner communities of people who aren't able to go out and, you know, wine and dine. And that's, you know, our industry show, you know, the hospitality. So super excited for Canada to be, you know, opening up. That's something that, you know, I don't even like usually consider or like think about because, you know, we're all, all in our own little worlds. Uh, most of the time too busy to really, you know, see what's going on outside, but it's, it's always nice to connect with, you know, chefs, uh, and especially with so much experience and so much traveling, which I love. Um, and I'm pretty jealous. I haven't done a lot of traveling yet. Uh, but I'll definitely be gearing into that and, uh, definitely be checking out a lot of those spots that, you know, we all kind of look up to and, um, you know, all want to dine in at. Yeah, for sure. As soon as people can travel again, but I think that's going to happen pretty quickly now. But uh, yeah, get the, the more you can see and the more you can eat. Uh, I mean, that's 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 just how you should be, right? Like that's fun. Yeah, definitely. And then in terms of uh, how people can find you um, and reach out to you, uh, or do you guys do uh, just like reservations online? You guys do uh, right now. You're just doing patio. Everybody in Toronto. Yeah. So, I mean, we don't have a patio, but in terms of reservations, you know, you can find us, uh, you know, canoe has its own Instagram site as well. Um, I mean, people can reach out to me, obviously personally through Instagram. Um, I try to get back to people, uh, to most people, if, if, if the question's actually not crazy, there's some, there's some crazies out there for sure. But, uh, yeah, I mean, through, through our website, um, but our, 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 um, reservation lines aren't open yet because we're not sure when the government's going to allow us to open, but we're, we're aiming for, two and a half, three weeks from now. Um, so when that does go live, yeah, our reservation lines will be open um, through website, uh, telephone, and also through social media outlets. So um, yeah, it's Canoe Restaurant in Toronto and um, and then and, and my, my social, uh, my Instagram as well. Awesome. Well, it was a pleasure talking to you, getting to know, you know, where, where your culinary journey started. And it was really exciting to see where it took you. And kind of full circle, you're, you know, you're back in Canada, a little bit different uh, city, but it's still pretty awesome. Uh, you know, all the experiences that you got to have and uh, all the chefs and really what I'm, what I love about, you know, this industry is that we all go, um, especially when we're talking in, in terms of like fine dining and like really trying to get that high, higher knowledge of like technique and stuff. It really comes down from you know, history of like this chef worked with this chef and this chef and this chef and this chef. 
And then that we become part of that like lineage, which is really like awesome that, you know, we grab all these years of knowledge that, that has been around, uh, you know, starting off with Escoffier to where we are today. Um, it's just like awesome to be a part of that. And it's awesome to hear, you know, your personal touches on that. Yeah. Thanks, man. Uh, it's been, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me and reaching out to get me on this. It's good to chat about some stuff because you know, you, you forget some of the stuff you do sometimes until you actually talk about it. So yeah, it's, um, definitely it's been cool, man. Great to reflect. Uh, and then, like I said, guys, you have to check out his Instagram page. I mean, the food he's putting out is just incredible. Um, just the level of, you know, details, elegance, technique is just beyond. And I'm super excited that we got to have you on the pod. I'm going to let you go. I, I heard you were just finishing up service and you were uh, so kind to give us a little bit of your time. So we really appreciate that. And we'll be in touch, showing lots of love. Yeah, amazing. Thanks, mate. Pleasure. Thank you. Everybody have a good evening and we'll catch you next week.